So we are going to be in Luke 17 today, so grab your Bible if you need one. There's some right at the front door on that table too. Um, feel free to get up and go get one if you want. Uh, we'd like you to have the passage before you so you can see God's Word as we work our way along through it. Um, so I hope you enjoyed Summer Psalms this year. We had the one last week and now summer is over. It is done, or maybe it's not. No one really knows when it began, when it ends, anything this year. So that's kind of the world we're living in right now. But today we are looking at two great passages in Luke 17. Uh, and we're going to read them in two sections. The first one, and then we'll get to the second one, because they, they kind of uh, function separate in that regard. Uh, and we're just going to jump right into the first one. So if you will, Luke chapter 17, beginning in verse 7, follow along. And this is Jesus speaking. Will any of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to, to him when he has come in from the field, come at once and recline at the table? Will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink and afterwards you will eat and drink? Does he thank the servant because he did what he was commanded? So then, so you also... When you, have all, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. The grass withers, the flower fades. Let us pray. Gracious Father, in your word today, you have something for us to learn about ourselves and about you. Holy Spirit, please enlighten our minds as we come prepared to be changed this morning. And we pray this in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. So let's start with a question. And here's the question that I, I want us to ask ourselves to, from the start. What does God owe me? What does God owe me? I mean, it really, how do you answer that question? What, what does God owe me? And I, I don't mean how should you answer that question, because you can probably all ace that really quickly, right? You know the right way to do it. But, but how do you honestly actually answer that question in the depths of your heart? What does God owe me? And, and I ask this because how we actually answer that question reveals quite a bit about the way that we actually relate to God, right? On, on some level, do, do we harbor some, some deep-seated frustration at God because he hasn't met these expectations of what we think God actually owes me and so we're frustrated at him because of that. We're frustrated at life because he hasn't served us the way we expect he is supposed to serve us. Or do we see ourselves like the conclusion of this first section, right, as unworthy servants of the Lord? So right off the bat, it's probably worth getting to this. That, that word translated servant in our ESV, it's a, a Greek word maybe you've heard before. It's the word doulos. Any of you heard it by a show of hands and recognize it? So a number of you have recognized this. The first time I ever saw it was when I was a student at Texas A&M. Uh, and walking through campus and began to see these navy blue shirts that had in Greek letters the word doulos in white, letter, or white letters right across the front. Uh, I had no idea what they meant. They were weird. And so eventually I asked some guy, what, what is the world does that mean across uh, the front of you? And the guy didn't say servant like we see in our ESV. Anyone know what he probably said? Slave. He said slave. And, and my initial thought, even as a Christian at this time, when he said this was, dude, that's weird. 
Why, why would you? And it made no sense to me initially right then. See, the, the, the shirts were made by this Christian group, though, on campus, and it was designed to simply remind Christians that while we are by faith children of God, we are also under the authority of God, who is our master, who is our Lord, and thus we are slaves in the service of the Lord. And if that seems weird to you, consider this. When, when Paul begins his letter to the Romans, right, that glorious letter, he begins by saying, Paul, a slave of Jesus Christ. When Second Peter, right, begins there too, he begins by saying, Simon Peter, a slave and apostle of Jesus Christ. The book of James and Titus, Jude, Philippians, they all begin the exact same way, acknowledging themselves to be slaves of the Lord. Now, when you hear the word slave in this context, I don't want you to think in any way what, what is a, a sinful practice, may, a way of slavery that we have in the United States. That's not the same thing when we look at biblical slavery. See, um, a kidnapped, when, when we're talking about that, right, a, a, because that involved a, a kidnapped person who was sold into slavery, which is absolutely forbidden in, in the scriptures. Exodus 21, 16 says this, Whoever steals a man and sells him, and anyone found in possession of him, shall be put to death. So not only is it wrong, you can see the consequence, how dearly, deeply it is because of that. Now, when we see slavery in the New Testament, it's predominantly people who owed a great debt for one reason or another, and in order to pay off that debt, would sell themselves willingly uh, into slavery, right? But it is more intense than we tend to think of something like employment. I want you then, though, here to, to distinguish, right, uh, and so and anyway, so to distinguish slavery as we see it in the New Testament and the way that it was practiced in our nation's history, uh, that's the reason that the ESV takes this word doulos and translates it into servant, because it didn't want us to come to the wrong conclusions here. But I, I do want you to understand this, because to, to understand this passage properly, you need to understand that the servant isn't just a person who decided, you know, I'll serve. And maybe next week I won't. So we don't think of it in terms of like an employee who's like, you know what, I, I, I'm done. I don't want to work anymore. Or, 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 or someone who's owed a paycheck because of the work that, that they've done, right? Um, it, it's, it's not like that. It, it's someone who has a responsibility now to their master to actually serve. And, and we can relate to that, right? As, as 1 Corinthians 6.19 tells us, uh, Right? That you are not your own. You were bought with the price that Jesus Christ has bought you. We belong to him. So here's the basic idea of this kind of weird uh, story Jesus says. See, the owner, is, uh, the owner of a slave did not become a, a debtor to the slave no matter how much work they do. Ever. No matter how amazing their work is, you do not ever put God in debt to you. See, Jesus wants you to understand that God is never, ever, ever in debt to you. No matter how much praise you do, no matter how much evangelism you do, no matter how many years you spent on the mission field, no matter how much money you give to kingdom, kingdom purposes, no matter how obedient you are to God's word compared to everyone else, none of this ever leaves God in debt to you. You are always and ever in need of the grace of God. So to understand the story in modern terms, you might imagine, right? You go out to eat at the Olive Garden, uh, and the waiter just shows up, right? Kind of just plops down in the seat next to you and is like, I am so glad you're here. I'm glad you're here. I, I have been serving for three hours already. I've been doing it amazing. I haven't gotten anyone's order right. It's been on time. It's been amazing. Um, and, and you know what? It's time for you to serve me. It's just time. 
And, you know, I'd like some shrimp alfredo and some of those buttery, what are they called, breadsticks, you know, just, so go get me some. Like, like none of you, not a chance, any of you are going to be like, yeah, that, that makes sense. Um, do you want some Parmesan cheese with it? No one's going to respond that way because that's not the way it works. You're, you're going to be thinking, no, that, that's your job. You're supposed to serve those people. You're, you're supposed to be serving us now. When your shift's over, feel free to go get that. But that's not how it works. And, and still, many believe their hard work for God has earned them something from God. Do you ever think that on, on any level? Like, he should answer this prayer of mine because... I've been teaching Bible study or Sunday school or whatever it might be, right? Um, we tend to lean that way sometimes. Now, now listen, here's the whole sum of what God owes you. Let me, let me put this plain and simple for you. You can write this down if it's hard to remember. God owes you nada. Zilch, zip, diddly squat, bumpkiss. I looked that one up, never heard it before. It means nothing. Nil. God owes you absolutely nothing. Does that sound harsh to anyone? It does sound a little harsh, doesn't it? I, I think it might sound a little harsh because we don't always understand responsibility, right? Kids, how many, are, even people remembering when you were a kid, you ever like clean your room or wash dishes and think, my parents should be paying this for me. They're treating us like slaves, right? All this hard work. I've actually heard Caden make that accusation before that, that he's treated like a slave as a child. Uh, he's joking, of course. But um, no, children, your parents should not pay you for that. If that's what you're expected to do as, as, uh, you know, as, as children, that's what you're expected to do. In verse 9, Jesus points out that a master does not owe a thank you to a servant for doing what he's supposed to do. And again, it sounds harsh, but you've got to understand the context, right? You don't owe a thank you. And finally, Jesus gets to the point that the story illustrates in verse 10. Look at it there. He says, so you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We've only done what was our duty. And that phrase, unworthy servants, it doesn't mean despised. It doesn't mean unloved or, or, or anything like that. It, it doesn't mean like we often see it in, in common use. It means really what we've been talking about, that it's simply that you've earned Nothing. Nothing. Even if you could serve God perfect, and, and you can't. But, but even if you could, you, you'd only be doing what you're actually supposed to do to begin with. What you're supposed to do. And, and still, honestly, isn't it difficult to really admit to ourselves that, that when we're serving God, we haven't actually earned something from God? Because again, we, we kind of want to think, God, God, can't you at least consider my mission trip in this? Can it, can it be put into consideration for these things I'm asking you for? All the financial benefit I've given to your church or the hard work. I, I memorize all of John 15. That's got to be worth something, right? There's this sense that we wanted to, to have some value like that. And he's saying here, when, when we acknowledge ourselves as unworthy servants, that this isn't some false humility, first of all, right? It, it's truth and it serves to magnify the grace of God to us. That, that's kind of the point. And so we serve him dutifully and we serve him joyfully and, and faithfully. And our, our, our hope is, is never to put, our, uh, to, to put God in our debt. But, but still, we, we may long for the day, right? It, it doesn't mean we don't long for the day that, that the master, as, as, as in another story that Jesus tells in Matthew 25, 21, right? We want to hear those words. Well done, good and faithful servant. Th those are words we long for. Not because we earned them. 
And remember, Jesus doesn't owe anything. If, if he's decided to serve us, it's, it's only because of his amazing grace. And, and you know, Jesus does willingly serve us. That's why this, sometimes you hear this and you're like, well, that's, that's not right. Jesus does serve us. The master does serve us. Well, he does so willingly, not because we've earned it. Um, we saw that back in Luke 12, 37, right? There's a master there in a story and the master's representing God and, and he invites his servants to come in and recline at the table and I'm going to serve you, right? Not because they've, they've earned it, but because that's the kind of master the Lord is. We, we also see this on the cross, right? The only person ever who doesn't belong on that cross is the Lord Jesus Christ and He's holy and our, our perfect Savior, divine, and he lays down his life for sinners, for you, for me, for, for we who are unworthy. And so we are all unworthy, yes, but we are also deeply beloved by the Lord. There's no easy transition to this next section. If I would thought of one this week, this is where it would be, right here. Um, but we are going to move on to the next section, and I, I want you to read again. And again, get this text right before you. Follow along as we read this. You can... Use a Bible if you have one in paper, your phone, whatever it takes. We're beginning in verse 11. It says, On the way to Jerusalem, he, Jesus, was passing along between Samaria and Galilee. And as he entered a village, he was met by ten lepers who stood at a distance and lifted up their voices, saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. When he saw them, he said to them, Go and show yourselves to the priest. And as they went, they were cleansed. Then one of them when he saw that he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice, and he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. Now he was a Samarian. And then Jesus answered, Were not ten cleansed? Where are the nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, Rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. And so Jesus is traveling between Galilee and Samaria. Uh, and most likely, he's still being followed by all sorts of people, right? The Pharisees and the sinners and the tax collectors and all sorts of people, right? And he enters this, this village and behold, there's this group of lepers and they're off in the distance and they're yelling at him. Um, now, you got to understand what a leper is. I know you, you generally know it's just a, a skin thing, but try to get your head around this. If you are a leper... It means that you're a man or a woman with a terrible skin disease, uh, open sores at various places. Sometimes it meant losing feeling. Sometimes it meant endless itching and irritation. Uh, at, at times, people's hair would turn absolutely white as a result of it. If there's a really bad case, you, you could have like a finger fall off and, and you not even realize it happened until you look down at it. it. It's a lot like the common concept of a zombie in, in movies and books today. Um, it, it's just a terrible, terrible disease. And then on top of that, you're contagious, okay? So you, you can't be around anyone. The, the law uh, forbid you from interacting with your family and your friends, and, and you couldn't go with the, uh, the gathered community to worship God together. You see, long before the phrase existed, lepers had to socially distance themselves uh, from others. And in fact, when they walked anywhere, they, they had to go covering their upper lip like this, and, and they'd have to yell out, unclean, 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 as they're going. And, and people would look at them, and they would just be terrified of them, because that's someone who's contagious and, and can get you sick. So can you imagine walking around right now with a big sign on you that said, I, I have COVID-19. 
right? No mask, nothing. You're walking through the street. Can you imagine, right, the, the fearful looks on people's faces when, when you came within 10 feet of them and you're shouting, unclean, I have COVID-19. I don't want any of you to go try it, but can you imagine what that might look like? The looks on people's faces, the fear you caused in their faces. That's the life of a leper. That, that's what life would be like. And in fact, that, that's why Luke tells us specifically here, they stood at a distance, right? And they lifted up their voices. They couldn't even come into the presence of Jesus. They couldn't be near him. And so he had to shout from a distance. And so they're, they're, they're shouting over this crowd, right? Like some chief ran trying to get Mahomes' attention after a game. They're just hoping they can be loud enough together to get him to look over there. And, and so these lepers have, have come to find Jesus for one reason, and that's because they believe that Jesus can actually heal them from their leprosy. And they're calling out to him, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. Um, when you hear this, I want you to think of it in some regards as a prayer because it is a prayer. They're, they're going to the Son of God, divine, right? And they're asking God for mercy. That's their plea. J.C. Ryle uh, once wrote, when, when a person becomes aware of his disease, he quickly learns to pray. If only the people in our nation, people in our cities, could see their souls the same way that these afflicted lepers saw their bodies, right? Then, then they, too, they too would, would cry out in prayer to the Lord, have mercy on us, Lord, have mercy. One of the things I, I love looking at the lepers here is the way that they're, they're not bargaining, right? They're not offering anything of, at all. They're, they're, there's no because in their statement, right? Have mercy on us be, be, because, right? Be, because I was a good Jew, before this happened, because I'll serve you in this way, right? Heal me, heal me to prove you're the Son of God, or, or heal me to prove that you're actually good, or, or anything like that. It's, it's just a bare plea for the mercy of God. And how Jesus heals them is intriguing as well. Nothing flashy. There's no Benny Hinn fire upon you here. It's just, you know, Jesus speaking. Look at verse 14 there. He says, go and show yourselves to the priest." I mean, think about that. Have mercy on us. Go and show yourselves to the priest. What, what does this mean? Well, first of all, why, why the priest, right? He sends him to the priest because God's law in Leviticus 14 says that the priest had authority to determine if someone had leprosy, with leprosy, had actually been healed. He was the one to say, yeah, yeah, you're clean. Now go do the ceremony and then you can go right back into community uh, and to worship and your family and all those things of that nature. Uh, and so they could once again experience even just the embrace of another human beings. And, and so that's where he's sending him. What, what's amazing here, though, is how the lepers unquestionably obey Jesus. I, I just think if you had 10 of us, any 10 of us, and we went and we're like doing the same thing, right? How in the world is there not at least one of them complaining, right? What, why should we go see the priest? You, you haven't healed us. You haven't done anything. You haven't even prayed for us. I just wonder what sort of complaints we would, we would, you know, fire back at Jesus here. And yet all of them are like, okay. And they go to the priests. See, this thing, an instruction is a test of their faith. Do they believe that Jesus can heal them? And they do. The fact that they obey his words tells us they believed, right? It's, it, and isn't the next part just beautiful? Try to picture this in your mind, right? Uh, this group of 10 lepers, maybe a mix, men, women, we don't know. They're on their way to see the priests and they're going. And, 
uh, and maybe they're talking, maybe they're quiet, who knows. But along the route, they, they start to realize, oh, our, our skin, it's, it's healed, right? They start to feel it. They're looking at their arms, they're looking at their hands, and, and they're smiling, and their breathing kind of changes because they, you know, they just didn't know this day would ever come, and they're joyful, and they're showing each other, look at my hand, it's, it's well, look at my foot, it's healed. And one of them, this, this one man, right, is filled with so much gratitude towards the one who healed him that he, he kind of stops and he looks back, and he leaves them. He, he decides he's going to go back and, and see Jesus. And the, and the other nine, the text doesn't tell us this, but, but I, I can only imagine that they're still so excited about the gift they've just received that they just keep going, and they don't even realize the one guy has left them. And, and meanwhile, the man who turned back, he's so overjoyed that, that he's loudly just praising God, Hallelujah! Praise the Lord, I'm healed, I'm healed, things of that nature. And, and you and I would probably see him pass us on Points Avenue and be like, that guy's crazy town. I don't know what's going on. He's crazy town though. Now, and then he finds himself right in the presence of Jesus and he falls on his knees and he bows on his face to the ground in worship and he says something like, thank you Jesus for showing mercy. Thank you for healing me. Thank you. And the end of verse 16 is the big reveal. I know it doesn't shock you and I, but for the original audience, as, as Jesus, is, as this is happening, this is the big deal, right? We, even Luke, as he's telling this, right? We learn that the man who was grateful was a Samaritan. In other words, the least likely, in the opinion of the Jews, to be going and thanking God for being healed. Because um, the Samaritans were like, cousins to the Jews but like those weird cousins that you kind of wish you didn't have to visit but you did um see they only believed in the law of Moses the the Torah the first five books of the Old Testament that was it and so they throw out you know the Psalms and the prophets and uh, you know chronicles and and things of that nature everything else got tossed out the Samaritans uh, also intermarried and then so they married outside of their faith with with non-Jewish people they rejected the temple in Jerusalem and instead had their own mountain. We'll worship here. This is the place to go. And yet here is this Samaritan with a grateful heart bowing in worship before Jesus. And then in verse 17, Jesus is speaking to this man, maybe also to those all around him, right out loud. And he says this. He says, we're not ten cleansed. We're the nine. Was no one found to return to give praise to God except this foreigner, right? The unexpected one. Now, I don't know how you'd respond, but if I'm this guy, I'm probably wanting to answer this. I, I don't know where those punks are, but I'm here worshiping you. Pray, I'm praising you. I'd, I'd kind of be like, just that, I don't know. Am I the only one who tends that's my natural response? Like, not me. Um, this man's a better man than I am. He, he says nothing. But we still have this question, right? Why, why did the nine not turn back and praise Jesus as well? And, and the reason here is that the mercy of, of Jesus to them did not soften their hearts. The, the healing work of Jesus was all that they wanted. Communion with Jesus was nothing they were seeking. Their view of Jesus didn't change at all from this. See, there's a, a big difference, a significant difference between being excited about what someone has done for you or even a gift that someone's given you to be just ecstatic about that and actually being thankful to the one who did it or, or gave it. All ten of them were excited, ecstatic, um, 
about what Jesus had done, but only one of them was thankful to the one who healed him. How, how often have you prayed to God for something and, and then failed to, to be grateful afterwards, he, even when he's done it? Um, I kind of had the experience in a weird way this week. I had my, my annual physical. I hate my annual physical. It's, it was good news until about 40. Um, they drew my blood, and when they did, they said, oh, and, and we're going to do a screening for prostate cancer on this one. And if you know me, I tend to go worst-case scenario real quick. I'm like, oh, that's not good. Um, and reading this passage, though, being in it this week, I, I you know, I thought, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pray the way I'm seeing them pray. Lord, have mercy on me. May this uh, go through and, and, and be negative and things be fine. And, and I get the stuff back um, on Thursday, and there's no concern with my prostate at all. Uh, and I, you know, learn that and skip right over it because they say, oh, but your cholesterol's high. You're going to need to do some, you know, aggressive diet change uh, or get on some meds that I don't want to get on. And, and I find myself so upset about that, uh, a bit depressed on some level. And a few hours later, I find myself, I, I'm back preparing, you know, looking at the text, trying to learn some sermon, and finally, suddenly it hits me, oh, man, I'm, I'm the nine... I'm absolutely the nine. Here God has answered this prayer for mercy that I asked for, and, and I skipped right through it, and my focus just goes right to, yeah, but not this one. What about this one? I never even stopped to be thankful for the, the, the negative on this, the screening. Um, it, it is so easy for us to find ourselves in ingratitude because you don't even notice it. So many of our active sins, right? You, you gossip, you walk away like, yeah, I just gossip, right? Or you just rip into someone. You're like, that was, not, that was uncalled for. You know that's wrong, but, but ingratitude just goes by un, unnoticed. Philip Riken rhetorically asked this question, is any sin more characteristic of our fallen race than ingratitude? It's just so thoroughly ingrained in us that we don't even notice it. Romans 1.21, speaking on the depravity of man, uh, Paul there writes, For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. If you're familiar with that chapter, we, we look at it and we think, oh, these are all these like, horrible sins people commit along, you know, before and after that verse. And, and there in there is like, these people are so depraved, they don't give thanks to God. We don't tend to put it in that category. It's, it's, and it's not just true of... The world, but Christians as well. Uh, J.C. Ryle over 100 years ago said the widespread thanklessness of Christians is a scandal. We of all people should be the most thankful people on the planet. And it's just not true. 1 Thessalonians 5.18, we, we read, Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. I don't know if you picked up on it, but by the way, that's a command in Scripture. To, to, to be thankful, right? To give thanks in all circumstances. That's a command as, as much as the moral will of God is for abstaining from sexual immorality or, for, you know, to not steal or to not murder. Those are also commands of the Lord. But when's the last time you, you found yourself repenting because of ingratitude? We even have this time of confession on our service. And I, I don't know, before today, I had the advantage of knowing what this passage says, so I had that over you. I, I don't know, before today, I, I'd ever found myself just repenting of, of ingratitude. 
God, you've done so many things and I focus on everything going wrong and just finding myself truly broken for my, my unthankfulness. Uh, as reading Jerry Bridges has taught me, thanksgiving is, is not a natural virtue. It's a fruit of the Spirit. It's something we, we learn, something we receive with, with grace. Uh, in fact, the, the first and greatest response to the gospel of grace is thankful worship of God. It is. In terms of our, our passage, what I'm saying is that this man, this one man, he, he's not only received healing of his body, verse 14, but unlike the other nine, he's received redemption of his soul. He, he has been given faith in Jesus. That's what's different. That's why when he finally can come near to anybody, right? Everyone else is going to the priest and he goes to Jesus. That's where he wants to be. And he worships. And in verse 19, Jesus says to him, Rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. And there's something interesting in that word well there, right? Look at it. You see it in the text before you. That word translated well is this Greek word sozo, S-O-Z-O, sozo. It means saved in the sense of salvation. In fact, many of you know Ephesians 2, right? Verse 8, for by grace you have been saved through faith. It's the exact same word there. Well saved, right? That's, that's what it's getting at. This, this man understood something about Jesus that the other nine did not understand, something that is spiritually discerned, something that we can only know by faith. He understood that Jesus is more than a miracle worker. Jesus is God and a Savior. And that's why this man goes to him and he worships. He, he's trusting in Jesus. Well, that's the end of the passage, but what's this, what's this mean for us, right? Just feel guilty because you're not grateful? No. Let us, let us move forward and learn from this. It, it means, first of all, that we, we want to pursue a heart of gratitude towards the Lord, and we want to do it for a couple of reasons. First, because gratitude helps us see what good things God has provided for us, right? When you start thinking, what do I have to be thankful for? It starts, you start seeing the works that God has done, and you know, um, instead of focusing on the things we think God owes us, we focus on the good things he has actually given us. And, and you'll find this, you, you can't actually hold on to gratitude and discontentment at the same time. They, they can't coexist in the same thought at the same moment. And, and so we find we, we have to let go of discontentment if we're going to pursue a heart of gratitude for all that the Lord has done for us, all that the Lord is for us. So that's the first one. The, the second one is this. Gratitude leads us to cherish all of God's gifts as gifts of God. And that changes the way we interact with them. We, we learn to uh, appreciate and, and care for these gifts of the Lord. To relate to them properly and not to uh, neglect or, or, or treat them poorly. For instance, your spouse is a gift of God. Your children, your friends, your covenant community. And if, if you're focusing on, on thanking God for your spouse or your house or your children, you, you'll treat them different. Not look at all these deficiencies, but thank you for this glorious blessing, Lord. Third, God deserves glory and ingratitude robs him of that glory. This is a big one. It just does. Every school year, <clears throat> Laura has our, our teacher's kids actually fill out this survey she gives them, and it's like, what's your favorite restaurant, your favorite drink at Sonic, or 
whatever, Starbucks, all these various things, her favorite things, and, and then she'll occasionally just bring them those things uh, as a gift. She'll just leave it for him up at school. Uh, Beckham's sixth grade teacher, Miss Norris, loved Diet Coke from Sonic, and, and Laura would drop her one off every so often and, and just leave it for her. So she never saw. She knew it was coming from us because we were the only people who knew it, I suppose. Uh, but somehow Mrs. Norris got in it in her head that I was the one doing this work for her. And she'd see Laura and I together, and she'd, and she'd thank me. Like, Brian, thank you for the Diet Coke. Maybe not that explicit, but she'd thank me. And, and you know, being the great husband I am, I'd always be like, you're so welcome. You're, yeah, happy to do it. I robbed her of glory, lowercase glory, but robbed her of the glory she deserved. It. And you all hear that, and you know that's wrong. What you did is evil. Like, she should get credit for that. We, we know that. Now, ingratitude, in a similar way, robs God of the glory that he deserves. See, this lack of thankfulness in our hearts and on our lips is a way of expressing, again, just deep-seated entitlement where, where we believe, you know what? God kind of owes this to me. I should get this. Life should go well. I shouldn't have to worry about high cholesterol. Right? I'm a pastor. God, you owe me. No, like, no, you don't think that way. You know, if we falsely credit ourselves for obtaining things, whatever it might be, I, I did this. Why would I thank God for my hard work? Um, right? We rob God of the glory he deserves. Maybe it's easy to think of this in the positive sense. When I am mindfully thankful to God, it glorifies him. And that's what I want to do. In my Bible in a year reading, I was in Psalm 50 this week. It's about um, God's people forgetting him, right? Lack of ingratitude and thankfulness and praise and and all of God's judgment that comes along with that. Uh, And and how providential is this? Psalm 50 actually ends with this, this statement here. It says, the one who offers thanksgiving as his sacrifice glorifies me. Right? Glorifies me. That's what we want to do. Um, finally, so, so here's what I, I want us to make a priority. I, I want us to thank God for things. And, and let me add this, to, to do it immediately. Right? Don't think I'll, at the end of the day, maybe I'll stop and thank God. Start getting a habit of doing it immediately. John Calvin rightly said, we, we have short memories in magnifying God's grace. Every blessing that God gives us perishes through our carelessness if we are not prompt and active in giving thanks. It perishes, Right? All the glory that God is worthy of, deserves from our praise, is, is taken and robbed from him when, when we put it off for later or for never. And so here's the question, if you want to write something down. Ask yourself often, right? What, what can I, with a grateful heart, thank God for in my life right now? Right? What, what, what can I thank God for in my life right now? And, and that's one of those questions that we want going through our mind on a regular basis. And finally, I told you we're almost done. Um, we, we learn to be thankful for what God has given us by reflecting on what we truly deserve from God. It's kind of been a theme of this, right? What, what do we deserve from God? And here's what we deserve. We deserve death and hell. That's brutal, honest truth. That's what we've earned, what we deserve. And then you reflect on the gospel. What has God actually given you? Well, He's given you life 
actual life, right? Friends, family, maybe a spouse or children. He's given a job or a school you enjoy. Warm summer afternoons. He's given you coffee and music and, and, and good health. And some of you are thinking maybe not good health. Well, he's given you better health than you actually deserve. But, but more than all that, do you, do you remember where Jesus is, is headed at the start of our passage? I want you to see this. Back in verse 11, if you still got it there, where does it say Jesus is going? Just shout it out. Jerusalem, right? So what, right? No, Jesus is not going to Jerusalem on vacation. That's, that's not what this is about. He, he's going to accomplish for, for you the greatest thing ever. He, he's going to secure mercy for you on the cross. He, he's going to secure forgiveness of sin, atonement. He's going so that you can be counted as righteous before God who is holy. He's, he's going so that you can be adopted into the family of God as a child of God to live with God forever. If, if God has given you faith in Christ, in the Lord Jesus Christ, he has given you everything. The greatest thing, the only thing of any true eternal significance. Consider what you deserve, death and hell. Reflect on what you've received, life and eternity in the kingdom of God. If you truly understand those two things, what you deserve and what you've received in the gospel, then your heart will swell with gratitude to the Lord of Lords who is merciful to us, merciful to you. Let us pray. Father of mercy and grace, we will never be in a position for you to thank us, for you to owe us. You, You will never owe us anything, and we are thankful for that. We're thankful. We, We owe you everything, and so please, Give us hearts like the Samaritan leper who who was healed, who came back. and Give us hearts that can see how unworthy we are and yet how loved we are. And thus, fill us with so much thankfulness for everything you do and everything you are for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.